right, grab your Bibles and go with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And uh, as you're making your way there, just a quick announcement. I want to remind you about Freedom Weekend. That's February 3rd through 5th, just a couple of weeks away. And this is an incredible weekend for us to equip and encourage our students. So parents and grandparents, if you have not gotten your student yet registered for Freedom, you need to do that uh, now because it promises to be a great weekend. And listen, this is a weekend for equipping the entire family. All of our life groups this weekend will be spent uh, uh, encouraging and equipping parents and families uh, to come alongside of their students. And so I want to make sure if you're not yet in a group, stop by Guest Central when we're dismissed today and let us get you connected. Really, I believe the best way for this big church to get small is to get connected into life group. And so the weekend of February 5th is the perfect time for that to take place. So make sure you get registered and then parents and families, uh, make sure you get connected with us in a group. And today we're jumping back into this sermon series as you just saw from that bumper a moment ago. Tell me the stories of Jesus. And we're navigating much in the way of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We began by talking through some of the significant aspects of Jesus' character. And then we migrated into some of the great conversations of Jesus. And today we'll spend a short season talking through some of Jesus' confrontations. So where was it that Jesus had these kind of tense encounters, these conversations that are worthy of our uh, time and of our study. And then we'll conclude our series later in the spring talking through some of the great counsel of Jesus. So what is the teaching and the counsel of Christ as recorded in the Word of God? And I want to always encourage you, if you have missed any of the week's in this series, you can always get caught up with us online. So just get onto our website, click the media tab, choose whichever campus you would like to watch, and then you can find the sermon for the week that you were out, and you can get caught up with us uh, right there. Now, for our study today, we are going to be talking about, as is no surprise based on the welcome and uh, the introduction of the Pregnancy Center and Leanne's conversation with us this morning, we're going to talk about the subject of life. And I really want us to be a people who understand why the matter of life matters so greatly to God, which then should mean why the matter of life matters so greatly to you and to me. Why should we be a people who embrace the subject of life? And today's conversation recorded in John chapter 10 might not actually appear, at least at first glance, to be a confrontation, at least in the most obvious expectation of that word, but I want to assure you that it is. In our passage today, Jesus is going to use this methodology of contrasting or comparison, and what he's going to do is contrast for us good versus evil. He's going to contrast for us right versus wrong. He's going to even contrast religion versus relationship, but ultimately when he boils it down, he's going to contrast the differences between life and death. And the reason this subject is so important for the church, that's you and me, for us to embrace and, I would argue, especially in our time today, to understand, to have a good and right understanding. You know, one of the things I'm constantly reminding us of is that we want to be a people who can defend the why behind our what. We, we, we know what we believe, but we want to be a people who can give a biblical defense as to the why behind our what. And when it comes to the subject of life, this is something that we need to understand why it carries such significance for us today. Because I would argue 
there is a great cultural revolution at work in and around us today, either under the banner of personal autonomy or individual choice, and it is attempting to destroy the God-given gift of life. And I'll illustrate this by just giving one example. There is currently today a catastrophic epidemic to eradicate Down's syndrome, but primarily through the method of prenatal detection and subsequent abortion of that baby or child. And did you know in the United States alone, when it's determined prenatally that a child may have a predisposition towards trisomy 21, that is Down syndrome, that it is 67% likely that the person will choose to terminate the pregnancy. In France, it's 77% likely. In Denmark, it's 98% likely. And in Iceland, they boast of 100% is the abortion determination rate when a child is believed to be predisposed towards uh, uh, Down syndrome in, in utero de, uh, genetic testing. But the test itself is only about 85% accurate. What a tragedy. And you know this is sensitive for me. Because if you know my family's testimony, you know that God has blessed us with five incredible children. My two daughters in the middle are 14 and 11 years old. They have a condition called trisomy 16P. It is so rare it doesn't have a syndrome attached to it. But my girls are cognitively, developmentally about nine months of age. They cannot walk. They cannot talk. They require round-the-clock, full-time, 100% personal care. And guess what? I would not be who I am today. If God had not entrusted me with those precious kids. You know what I mean? I just wouldn't be. And so imagine, imagine if we were to assign value to life as being less than ours simply because it's different from ours. Imagine that. Imagine how different your life would be and how much blessing God might have robbed you of. If he eradicated all the people in your life simply because they are different from you. And assigned a value to them as less than yours, simply because they do things you don't do or cannot do certain things that you might. How dangerous, how destructive that would be. We wouldn't be who we are, and yet that is the problem that we are facing today. And so, just a pastoral moment here, I would just say we're in dangerous territory when we become a people who attempt to control what we did not create when we're a people who attempt to define what we did not first design. And this is rooted in our sin of autonomy. You see, sin has corrupted our understanding of submission and God's good design for human flourishing. We're a people who don't want to be told what to do, even if what we're being told is what is actually best for us. We're still a people who push back against that. That goes all the way back to the original sin in the Garden of Eden when rebellion first showed up on the scene. This is why we need the gospel to redeem us. This is why the matter of life is a gospel issue because the matter of life is in fact a Jesus issue. And I'll show this to you today in John chapter 10. Now just a bit of context. In in John chapter 10 we see Jesus has just healed a man who was born with the condition of blindness in John chapter 9. 
So in John 9, a man is born blind. The disciples asked Jesus, what happened? Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born this way? Jesus said, no, no, no. He's born this way so that the works of God can be displayed in his life. Now, I love this because Jesus explains the workmanship of God prior to the healing ever taking place. You with me? Then Jesus puts mud on the man's eyes, has him washed, and he is healed. And it makes the religious rulers infuriated. Because they cannot understand it, and they cannot explain it, and therefore they cannot control the narrative behind it. And so they begin to uh, uh, push back against this man and dismiss him and his miracle because they simply do not understand the work that Jesus has done uh, beneath it. And so in John chapter 10, then Jesus begins uh, to speak to them as, as a shepherd who cares for his sheep. See, the Bible tells us that there have been many who came before, there are going to be many who come after, and they're going to present themselves as a form of spiritual leadership. But they're going to be revealed as false leaders because unlike Jesus who describes himself as a shepherd that cares for sheep, false leaders are going to allow the sheep to be slaughtered. They're not going to protect and provide for the sheep. And so when Jesus draws on this language of a shepherd and sheep, he's actually drawing on familiar language for the audience of that day. This is Psalm chapter 23. My favorite Psalm, the very first one I ever memorized, David writes and he describes his relationship with God. And when David writes, this is a king who's writing. He's drawing on his childhood, having grown up as a shepherd. And and David says, I'm like a sheep and, and God is like my shepherd. And and, uh, and the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. And he makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. And he restores my soul, and he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You provide a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You even anoint my head with oil, and my cup will overflow. Surely goodness and mercy is going to follow me, God, all the days of my life. And guess what? I'm going to dwell in your house forever. David talks... Uh, with excitement about the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep because he knows that God has cared for us in that type of way. And, and Jesus says, now I'm like that shepherd. And, and anybody who's not going to pro- provide and protect you is, is going to ultimately des- destroy you. And, and I'll, I'll prove it because like they threw this blind man who had received his sight out of the church And they not only threw him out of the church, but they attempted to disregard Jesus, who is the one behind the miracle that they're so upset over. And that's when Jesus intervenes on the scene. John chapter 10. Let's pick it up together in verse number 7, and we're going to see how Jesus responds. John chapter 10. Pick it up with me in verse number 7. If you're there, say, I got it. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Now again, Jesus is using this method of contrast to compare the difference between himself as a shepherd and and those who would uh, not want to rightly care and provide uh, for the sheep. Jesus says, "Uh, I'm I'm a provider In fact, I'm going to evidence my provision even in terms of salvation. That's why Jesus says, I am the door. Now, notice the the singular nature of the conversation that Jesus has. Unlike those who might want to present many ways, Jesus says, I am the only way. I am the door. Not a door, not a revolving door. I'm the door. He goes on in verse 10. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, if you mark or highlight in your Bibles, and I always encourage you to, uh, I would underline all of verse 10, and I would ask you right in the middle of it just to circle that word life. So if it's on your phone, on the app, just underline the whole verse 10, and then circle that word life, and I'll explain to you why here in just a moment. In verse 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Again, Jesus is continuing to use this contrasting language. He's trying to show the comparison between him as the shepherd who provides and the hired hand who is going to ultimately see the sheep destroyed. He talks about thieves and robbers and he compares them to the shepherd who provides pasture. He talks about a hired hand who flees and doesn't care as compared to the shepherd who stays and protects. He finally talks about wolves who snatch the sheep. They scatter them as compared to the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Now, certainly you have to understand Jesus is talking in terms of good versus evil. Certainly you can see he's talking in terms of right versus wrong. Yes, I would even argue he's talking in terms of religion versus relationship. But ultimately, when he boils it down, what Jesus is talking about here is life versus death. Jesus is talking about the differences between life and death. So I want to show you why we would say Jesus is the God of life. And I had you underline verse 10 and circle that word life specifically for a reason. Because I want you to see what is Jesus' stated purpose for coming to earth. He gives away the entire point of his ministry. He gives away the entire purpose of God sending him to earth to usher in this good news of the gospel. Look again with me at verse 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But I came. Again, here it comes. Ready? This is the stated purpose of Jesus for why he has come to earth. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And notice this statement is full of contrast. It includes rich comparison. And unlike some of the rest of the dialogue, the two figures that are being compared are singular in nature. This is important, and here's why. Because Jesus is contrasting himself to anyone who would lead people astray through false teaching, false doctrine, or a false ideology. And while this reference here to thief, I want to be clear on this, this is not a specific reference to Satan. It is rather a reference to anyone who would teach false doctrine and ideology and then lead people astray by it. And guess what? That is demonic. That teaching that would lead people astray is, in fact, demonic. In fact, in John Chapter 8, verse 44, just a few conversations before, Jesus is describing Satan. He is describing our enemy. And in John 8, 44, Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies. And so when it comes to this debate about life, look up here at me. Satan is a liar who is seeking to destroy it. And he is manipulating the conversation one person at a time. But it's a lie. It is a lie that is demonic at its origin because the thief, anyone who teaches false ideology, false doctrine, anyone who runs in contradiction to God, he has come to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, my stated purpose is I want you to have life. I've come that you may have life and have it 
abundantly. In fact, as it pertains to the subject and the cultural conversation at large around the subject of life, it is demonic to think that either God doesn't care about it or that somehow we can control it or worse, that we are allowed to assign value to it. So it's demonic to think that either God doesn't care about the conversation of life, that we can somehow control it, the subject of life, or that we can assign value to it. That is demonic thinking. And yes, it is leading people astray even today. And so again, what is Jesus' stated purpose for coming? He says, I came that they may have life. It's that simple, fam. Jesus came to give life. The matter of life matters to us because the matter of life matters to God. It is, in fact, the reason that Jesus came. And so I want to share with you a few thoughts about this subject of life that we can glean from the person of Jesus Christ. So if you're a note taker, let me encourage you to write this down. The first is this. Jesus came to give life. It's pretty simple. John 10, 10. I came that they may have life. I came that they may have life. Life. Jesus is the God of life. He comes to give life. Now, how do we understand the giving of life from God? Well, first, Jesus, uh, or God gives life as its creator. I like to say as its author. The origin of life begins with God. He is the author. He is the creator of life. Just go all the way back to the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2. The Bible tells us that when God speaks, life begins. He is the creator of all life. I would say as it relates to humanity, although there are a number of places I could take you in the scriptures, I, th I really think the preeminent text is Psalm 139. It's probably familiar to many of you. But in Psalm 139, a psalm, again, recorded by David. David is thinking about this relationship that he has with God and just the intimacy and the intricacy of that relationship. David must be thinking like, God, you know everything about me. You, you know when I get up and you know when I go to bed. You know what I'm thinking. You know where I'm going. You know where I've been. You know where I'm going to go. David is thinking in detail about this. And here's how he describes that creator-creation relationship between us and God. David says, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God is the creator of life. And so look up here at me. There are no accidents with God. There, there are no accidents with God. There are a lot of surprises for you and me. Somebody say amen. Okay, but there are no accidents with God. You are not an accident. You are not carrying an accident. You did not miscarry an accident because there are no accidents with God. The greatest surprise of my life is in the third grade, and she was created by God and entrusted to Mary and me. But there are no accidents with God. He creates and authors life. He gives life as its creator. Secondly, I would say he gives life as its definer. As its definer. Of, of course, because he is its creator, then God gets to establish how the creation was intended to 
a flourish and to thrive. How we are intended to live and what are the boundaries and what are the instructions and what are the expectations that God has for us. And why is it that God gets to establish these rules and this order? Because he's the creator. And so as the creator, he gets to then subsequently serve as the definer. And the problem happens for us as it relates to this subject of life is when we try to redefine what God has first designed. And that's where we run into this Rub. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman church, and at the very beginning of his letter, it's like Paul wants to level set the playing field for the Roman church. He writes to the church in Rome, and he wants to establish for them, here's the reason why the wheels have come off for everybody. Paul's explaining, here's the reason why sin is so prevalent. Here's the reason why all of the problems with people have shown up in your New Testament church. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, now watch this, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, now watch this, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But instead they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He goes on, verse 23, verse 25, he talks about this exchange. In 23, he says they exchanged the glory of God for mortal man. In verse 25, he says, he says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And then when he gets down to verse 28, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, then what happened? Then God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, the, the challenge for humanity goes back to the sin of autonomy. It's because we don't want to be told what to do, right? And so Paul's explaining this to the church. The reason there is a temptation to want to assign value to life, whether it is different from ours or we think the choice is ours, whatever it is, it's because we struggle with the sin of autonomy because we want to redefine what God designed. And the problem is God gives us up to it. Have you ever tried to play a board game with a child who doesn't know the rules? It's a disaster. You know what I mean? So too, when humanity tries to push back against the boundaries that God has established, watch this, for our good. So too is it a disaster. Number three, he gives life as its sustainer. As its sustainer. I love this. Okay. Jesus is holding all things together all of the time. I, I don't, like there are times when it really feels out of my control, like anybody else. Like you're like, oh gosh, I dropped that ball, I dropped, I messed this up. Right? All the time we feel like life is out of our control. But here's the good news. As it relates to what really matters eternally, right? Jesus holds all things together all the time. He's, he's in charge. The Bible says, I, I love this text. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, listen to this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's Jesus. And he upholds the universe. Like I'm just trying to navigate how I'm going to get through this day, right? He upholds the universe by the word of his power, right? He gives life as its creator 
as its definer and yes, as its sustainer. Jesus is in charge of all things. He's holding all things together all of the time. A, a few years ago, my youngest daughter, Campbell, and I went for a walk and she rode her bike. And um, about halfway through the walk, I guess I went a little far. So about halfway through the walk, she got tired and she said, you know, dad, I'm tired. Can, can you carry the bike or push the bike and I'll just walk with you? And I was like, okay. So now I'm uh, walking down La Cima Boulevard and I'm pushing the bike and she's walking with me. Well, then we get a little bit further heading home and she says, dad, my legs are so tired. Can you carry me? <laughs> so now I'm pushing the bike and I'm carrying Campbell. And when we got home, now you'll love this. When we got home, Mary was like, well, how was the walk? And Cam was like, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> Fam, Jesus is pushing the bike and he's carrying us all day, every day. He's the sustainer. You with me? He's the creator. He's the definer. He's the sustainer. And then lastly, he is the defender. He's the defender of life. Just think about the nature and character of God. That God defends life. That God loves life. The psalmist writes in Psalm 140, verse 12, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and he will execute justice for the needy. In the first century, when children were not uh, appreciated in the culture at large. And some parents wanted to get their children uh, near Jesus. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 19, the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people, which would have been normative because kids didn't need to occupy this space and take up Jesus' time. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and he went away. Be honest with me. Based on your uh, a reading of the Bible, which sounds more like the God of it, that he would defend life or destroy it? Right? Which sounds more like our God? The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus said, I came that you can have life. So Jesus came to give life. Number two is this. Jesus came to bless life. I love this. He came to bless life. Um, do you realize that God loves you so much that he doesn't want you to have an average life but an abundant life? Now watch this. But he gets to set the definition for what that is. This is where the church has historically run into trouble is when the church tries to establish what the definition of abundant life is versus God's definition of what the abundant life is. Amen? Right, so Jesus said, I didn't come for you to have an average life. I came that you would have life and that you would have it abundantly. And this matches the nature and character of God because the abundant life begins with Jesus. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, these were persecuted Christians. These are people who are trying to navigate this newfound faith in God. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Right? So the blessing begins with Jesus. He's not the means to the end. He is the end. He is the blessing. And he says, I came that you can have life, and you will have it abundantly. Not average, but abundantly. And he gets to establish what that looks like. Just think about the Beatitudes. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The blessed life is God's life. 
And it's the one that Jesus has come to usher into you and me. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he concludes the doxology at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, he says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Do you think God has small plans for you? Do you think that this life with Jesus is somehow intended to restrict and confine you? There are too many Christians who think Jesus is a cosmic killjoy. But he's the God of life, and not an average life, but in his words, the abundant life. But he gets to establish what that means. Now, why is that a challenge for us? Romans 1. Because the cinema autonomy says that we don't want to be told what to do. Because we want to redefine what we did not first design. So in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, there's this incredible moment when uh, Moses has led God's people out of Egyptian captivity, and they're about to inhabit the land that was promised to them. But because of sin and some consequences from that, there was a generation of people that had to die off through a wandering in the wilderness, and then Moses himself was not going to actually be able to lead God's people into the promised land. And so he had raised up a successor, a man named Joshua, and Moses gave Joshua and God's people some last-minute instruction before they moved into the land that was promised. And that instruction is boiled down to two choices, life and death. And this is the words of Moses as a word of warning to the church then, and I would argue it's a word of warning to the church today. He says this, Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting in verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the Lord's commandments, I'm I'm sorry, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God and walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and if you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and to possess. So watch this. So I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death blessing and curse therefore choose life that you and your offspring can live loving the Lord your God obeying his voice holding fast to him for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob to give to them the promised land would be a generational blessing to God's people if they lived in it following the instruction and the guidance of God, that would bring them life. So too, does following God's instruction bring life to you and me as well, right? Jesus is not your cosmic killjoy. He is the author of life, and it's an abundant life as he has designed for our good, for our good. Like, imagine the chaos that would ensue if we didn't have traffic laws which say you drive your car on the right side of the road there'll be a line in the middle of it and the other uh, uh, traffic coming the other direction will come on its right side of the road and uh, and make sure that you stop at these stop signs or at these lights right like people will be pulling up into your front yard they'd be driving on the sidewalk while you're trying to walk the dog it would be total chaos and so we thank God for the order we thank God for the design we thank God for the pattern and for the instruction And so too, Jesus has given us a design and an order and a pattern and instruction for human flourishing. 
And when we follow that, we find abundant life. But when we say, I know best, and I don't want to be told what to do, then that's when we run to, into chaos. And the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus came to usher in life. He gives it and he blesses it. And that leads me to the last. Jesus came to save life. He came to save life. Again, go back to our text in John chapter 10. Pick it up in verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them up also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And for this reason the Father loves me. Because I laid my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus came to give life, to bless life, and yes, to save life. In fact, I would even argue, fam, that we will not have the right understanding of the reason to contend for life in the here and now if we don't have the right understanding that Jesus came to give us life with him forever and ever and ever. So if we don't have an eternal perspective, then we're not going to be able to rightly step into the fray in the temporary, in the present, in the here and the now. Because we have to have an eternal lens. Otherwise, then why wouldn't we see Libby and Hannah or any person born with Down syndrome or any disability or any person who may not be seen as equal to you or to me, as less than simply because they're different from. If all we're measuring is based on the here and the now, and we're not seeing people as having an intrinsic value and dignity and worth because they have been created by God for eternity to be celebrated with him, then why, I mean, it makes sense why you would see the need to disregard life in, in, in the present day. You with me? So, so one of the things I'm most proud of in our church, I'm most proud of you for this, is that we have an, a culture that has embraced life. So not only do we have the pregnancy center, which helps people with an unexpected pregnancy, but we have the resource center so that when people choose life, we can come alongside them and encourage and equip them and provide resources and clothes and diapers. But we have, through our life recovery ministry, the post-abortive care for people who haven't chosen life, but we want to come alongside them and encourage them and redeem them. Through the special needs ministry of our church, did you realize that when I showed up in 2019, we had two regular attenders in our special friends ministry? Two Sundays ago, ready? We had 74. That's you. That's God using you. I, sell it. I praise God for that. Today... We had to multiply a new one-year-old preschool class and a newborn's preschool class because we're a church that embraces life. And so we're going to make space for those lives. I read this week about um, a family early in the 19th century when the California gold rush had exploded. Um, a dad, uh, uh, a young husband and father left his family because he was going to go seek his fame and fortune in California. And so he left them on the East Coast and he moved to California and once he, think, he got things settled there, he sent word for his wife and his young son to join him. So they went to New York Harbor, and they boarded a Pacific steamer, and they began to make their long journey all the way around to California where he would meet them at the coast. 
Not long after they began the journey, somewhere off the eastern seaboard, then the ship caught fire. And as was not unusual at that time, there were several kegs of gunpowder in the lower hull. And the captain went to the people and he said, by the time the fire makes it to the lower hull, there will be a massive explosion and no one left on the boat will survive. So they lowered the lifeboats, but guess what? There were not enough lifeboats for the number of people on board. After making a big enough scene, the mother and her son were unable to find room on one of the boats. And so the mother screamed and screamed and screamed until another woman held up her arms. And this mother kissed her child and handed her son to that stranger. And she said, if you live to see your father, would you tell him that I gave my life for yours? Do you realize, like, that's the gospel. Like, like sin is burning everybody up. Right? And, and there's an explosion that's coming. And, and Jesus is the one who stepped into that. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But I would argue that there's no way for us to embrace that abundant life in the here and the now if we don't understand that God's grace is for us to have eternal life with him forever. And so I don't know where you are on your journey with Jesus. I, I, don't, I don't know if the issue of life is one that you think you're still wrestling with. I don't know if your life belongs to God, if you've confessed sin and asked God to save you. I, I want to invite you today to do that. I want to invite you today to give your life to Jesus Christ. Confess, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I trust you to be my Savior. And then in a moment... I'm giving you an invitation to come and have a conversation with one of our staff or volunteers. Or, or maybe you would say, I want to join Prestonwood. I want to be about the things that they're about. I want to link arms with these brothers and sisters and run hard and fast after everything that God is entrusting to this church. Let's do it. We're better together. Let's do it together. Maybe like that man in the water of the baptistry this morning, God has already done an inward change and you need to express that outwardly through obedience and believer's baptism. We want to celebrate that with you. Maybe the issue of life is one where you have not always landed where God's word says that those who belong to him should. And, and so maybe today is a day where you need prayer or encouragement. If you have suffered an abortion, you haven't sent out sinned the grace of God. Like Jesus died for that. So don't walk in that darkness. Don't walk in that shame. That's the enemy's playground. Ours is a God of light, and so come forward and let us pray with you and for you. We'll come alongside you and encourage you. We have resources that we want to give to you and, and life recovery ministry that was developed specifically to encourage you. But whatever God is speaking to your heart, I'm, I'm praying that you would just simply be obedient to respond and say yes. So I'm going to pray when I say amen. The ministers and volunteers, decision encouragers will be here at the front of the room. And I'm believing that there'll be a number of you that step out in faith and, uh, and come forward and respond to whatever God is laying on your heart here today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us. Jesus is the greatest evidence that that is true, God. I pray now for this invitation that you would move in our hearts as you move in this place. Forgive our sin, cause us to be more like your son. We love you. We can do nothing good without you. We pray to you in Jesus' good name. Amen.